There's a man named uh, Israel Zangwill. He was born in London, January the 21st, 1864, to a family of Jewish immigrants from Russia. And in 1908, a play that he wrote about immigrants in America becomes, actually became one of the most successful productions in the history of Broadway. And the name of the play is The Melting Pot. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard of it. And in this play, Zangwill claimed that God was using America as a crucible to melt the 50 barbarian tribes of Europe into a metal which he can cast Americans. And so what he was saying was that all these different people from the different cultures and countries, they would all come to America and God was using this vision of America to, to uh, you know, in other words, put them in this melting pot. And so they'd all come with their different distinctions and differences and they'd be, they'd be melted down and they would all become, you know, Americans. And uh, this vision of America you know, would, would draw in people that would otherwise not link arms with these other cultures or other countries, but because they all came to America with the same vision of becoming Americans and taking advantage and getting the opportunity of being an American citizen, it, it united them, it caused them to be one. And as we know, you know, the vision of America has had its ups and downs, uh, but still, people flock to our shores to be placed in that crucible with millions of other people so they can become Americans. And this idea or this metaphor of the melting pot is one that has uh, caught on uh, all throughout the years since uh, Zangwill wrote this play and it was performed in 1908. Now, that sounds like a good metaphor and perhaps it is, but when you push it a little bit more, there's a problem with it. And that is... Uh, you, you bring the distinctions and the differences of all these people together, you melt them down in a crucible, and then out comes an American. The question is, what is an American? What well, depends. Usually that term is defined by those who have power, and that they determine what an American is. And so our country, we determine, okay, what is an American? So those who are in different aspects of government, and as laws are passed and whatnot, we define what an American is. For example... To be an American does not simply mean that you live in America, right? You actually have to do other things. Like, for example, you have to take a test on the English language. You have to take a civics test. In other words, you have to learn knowledge about the country in order to be considered an American, a citizen you know, of a country. And so my point is that to become an American... Uh, has several qualifications to it. I mean, there's several things you have to do in order to be considered an American. So maybe this melting pot metaphor is a good one in that we're trying to create a sameness with people that want to become American citizens um, and blend into what it means to be an American. But what about the church? Is this metaphor a good one to be used for the church when we consider the nations coming together in one in one people, in Christ. Well, I don't think it is, and I want to tell you why. Because this melting pot metaphor does a good job at illustrating unity. 
right? It illustrates sameness. In other words, you have these different metals, different types of metals brought together, heated up in this crucible, melted down, and it all forms one metal. So there's great unity there because everything's the same now. It's all been melted down into one metal, you know, one substance. But the problem with it is, it promotes unity to such a degree that it also promotes and illustrates uniformity. In other words, it fails to acknowledge and appreciate the distinctions and differences in the people. And so, in other words, the melting pot promotes unity and uniformity. In other words, we all have to be the same. And that's why I think the melting pot illustration breaks down, especially when it comes to the church. I think a better metaphor, and it's actually one that's used in Scripture, is that of a body. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-6, through 6, this is what Paul says. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Then down in verses 12 and 13, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So on the one hand, you know, we all, no matter where you are, where you came from, what language you speak, what culture you come from, we all come to God through Jesus Christ. So we all have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one thing that unites us as Christians, and that is we are, we are identified in Christ. And so in that sense, we're the same. However, Paul says that with this body metaphor, Jesus is the head of the body, and we are one body, we're all in Christ, connected to Christ, yet there are many members In other words, there is a unity in that we are united in Christ. He is our head. And we only come to God through Christ. And yet, at the same time, there is not uniformity. In other words, we're not all the same. But actually, we are different. And we are different in our calling. We're different in our giftings. God makes each of us different. And that should be uh, valued. And yet, we can also be united in Christ. And so... The body metaphor, I think, does a better job uh, illustrating this idea of unity and diversity instead of unity and uniformity. Now, when we get into the second chapter of Galatians, we see that there was a great danger in the early church to adopt the melting pot metaphor rather than implementing this body metaphor. And I can't emphasize enough the magnitude of what we see happening in Galatians chapter 2. And I'm going to seek to try to draw out some of that for you this morning to help you see why this was so important, what Paul did in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As you know, or as you may know, know, Paul writes this letter to the Galatians in order to uh, respond to an attack on him that these false teachers were making in Galatia. They were saying that you know, his authority, his motive, his message was impure. And so 
Paul fires off this letter to bring correction to those false teachers and to bring them back to the truth of the gospel and how the gospel was given to him and how he was motivated to share it with them. And as we move into chapter 2, Paul is going to show that his ministry and the gospel that he is preaching is affirmed by the apostles in Jerusalem. And you'll see why that's very important in just a minute. So look with me at verses 1 and following. And I want to just share with you a little bit about the magnitude of what's taking place here. First of all, we see that this trip to go to Jerusalem was commissioned by God. It's something God wanted Paul to do. And you see that in verses 1 and part of verse 2. He says, then after 14 years, he's probably talking there 14 years since his conversion to Christianity. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. And so this most likely means that God, you know, he told Paul, you need to go to Jerusalem. This is a significant point in the life of the early church that is going to have a lasting impact. And you'll see what I mean in just a moment. And then I want you to notice the boldness and the confidence that Paul brings with him into Jerusalem. Now, I'm not talking about arrogance here. I'm just talking about boldness and confidence in the truth that he brings with him into Jerusalem. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I went up because of revelation and set before them, meaning the apostles in Jerusalem, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And so Paul is coming to Jerusalem seeking public affirmation from the church leaders in Jerusalem regarding what God is doing among the Gentiles. And he says, I'm doing this so that I can make sure I'm not running in vain or I have not run in vain. And, and what Paul's not saying here, and you, can, you know this just from the previous chapter in Galatians, he's not saying that he had some fear that he was preaching a wrong gospel. That's not the point. But he's saying this is such a significant issue in the church that if I come to Jerusalem and Peter and James and John, if they don't affirm what God's doing, it is going to hurt the church for centuries to come. In other words, these churches that Paul helped to plant in Galatia and all the surrounding areas of Jerusalem, specifically made up of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, if, if what Paul is coming to Jerusalem to do, if it's not affirmed by Peter, then there is going to be a, a lasting impact regarding the fruitfulness of the gospel and the stability of these churches in the region. So if Peter does not affirm what Paul is doing and what God is doing through Paul, then all of Paul's work is in jeopardy. It's not that Paul doubts what he's preaching is true, but it's the fruitfulness, it's the result, it's the churches. They're in a very fragile place, especially that church in Galatia, where people were teaching that you, you must become culturally Jewish before you become a Christian. And so there was a fragile place there within many churches and this chapter in Galatians is significant to determine how do we move forward as the church is the gospel open to the nations and if so what does that look like and so Paul makes his way into Jerusalem now can you just imagine Paul's coming into Jerusalem Barnabas is with him Titus is with him 
And people are just kind of looking at Paul as he comes in, makes his way to see Peter. And they give him, you know, that eye of, you know, judgment, perhaps, or that eye of, I can't believe who he's bringing with him, type, stare, you know. And so he says, uh, Paul, um, who do you got there with you? He says, well, uh, Barnabas and Titus. And they say, well, now, uh, we're familiar with Barnabas, but Titus, is Titus a Jew? And he says, no, he's a Greek. And then they do, you know what we do. They, uh, they whisper over to Paul and kind of say, come, come a little closer. Now, Paul, um, you should know better than most that, you know, Jesus came uh, to fulfill the uh, sacrificial law. What he did on the cross was very important. We know that. But you should know out of all people that you also must align yourself and obey those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, such as, you know, the, the food laws, the clothing codes, and circumcision. And if Titus is a Greek, then that means he, he hasn't been circumcised yet. And so, he really needs to do that if he's going to be part of the church. If he's going to be recognized as a Christian. It's just, you know, talking about circumcision, not a bad idea to whisper that. So, I'm, you know, nothing against him there. But, that's probably what they said. And so, that, what they were preaching is that, okay, Christ came, and this was kind of the same group that was in Galatia, going against Paul's teaching. Christ came to fulfill the sacrificial law, so you don't have to go to the temple and sacrifice animals anymore. However, you still needed to obey the ceremonial law. In other words, those laws that set Israel apart from other nations, those visible, distinct laws that said you had to wear certain things, you had to eat certain things, you had to be circumcised. In other words, in order to set apart you from the other nations. He said, they still need to do that. And so, Paul responds by saying in verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul says, we did not yield, not even for a moment, to this idea that Jesus plus law equals salvation. We didn't yield for a moment. And the reason we didn't yield, well, one, that's not the truth, that's not the gospel, but two, we want to preserve the gospel for you, those of you who are not culturally Jewish. In other words, it's not Jesus plus eating certain things, Jesus plus wearing certain things, Jesus plus circumcision that equals salvation. That is not the gospel. And so Paul says we preserved it for the gospel's sake for the nations. And you may not be surprised by this. You know, if you're familiar with Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, to those outside Jerusalem, you may say, well, you know, Paul spent the majority of his time outside of Jerusalem uh, sharing the gospel with people who are not Jewish. So I'm, I'm not very surprised by that. But the question on your mind, perhaps, and on everyone's mind there in Jerusalem was, what does Peter have to say about this? 
you know, one of the key leaders in the church in Jerusalem. What will Peter say? Will Peter say that Titus needs to be circumcised, that he needs to become culturally Jewish in order to be a Christian? Will he say that you need to obey the ceremonial laws plus faith in Christ that makes you a Christian? So as you can see, this, this, is, a, this is a landmark decision for the church. What Peter decides, what he does publicly here, is going to color the church for centuries to come. You know, will the door be wide open to the gospel to go to the nations, or will it be constricted by these cultural parameters? And will the gospel be perverted by this idea that it's Jesus plus something else that makes you a Christian? So here's how Paul responds. Um, and he writes to the Galatians and tells them about his encounter in verses 6 through 9. He says, And from those who seem to be influential, speaking of the apostles, and what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, Paul says, I went to Jerusalem, I consulted with Peter, and they added nothing to the gospel that I had preached, and I preach. So there was no difference in the content of the message. And then he goes on in verse 7 to say, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just read there, non-Jew, okay? Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and what you need to see here is the, the uncircumcised, these are people who are from other cultures other than the Jewish culture. And so what he's saying is, God has called Paul to those who are culturally different than Jews, and he has called Peter to primarily do ministry within Jewish culture. Okay? And then he goes on in verse 8, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So a few things you need to note. One, they added nothing to the gospel that Paul had preached. So they publicly affirmed the message Paul had been preaching. And when they saw what God had clearly done through Paul, they gave what he says here is the right hand of fellowship. Extending a recognition of his, Paul's authority, his message, his ministry, you know, putting their approval on what God has been doing, which is very uh, encouraging to me and perhaps to you as well, in that Paul is not some lone ranger Christian out there doing his own thing, but he, he desires to be connected to the overall church. And so even though God has a special call in his life and he's going through the nations, he still wants to connect with other churches and be united in what God's doing in the world. And that's one reason why our church partners with other churches to try to get the gospel out to the nations. Because we want to be connected with people more than just ourselves. We want to connect with each other, but also we want to connect even beyond that so we can have a unified push to take the gospel to the world. And so... We see Peter extends the right hand of fellowship with Paul, and this was epic for the future of the church. I mean, this was landmark decision. This is huge for the church. Because when they came together on the gospel, 
what they did for the Christians in their day and in our day is they, sit, they, they basically showed that the gospel transcends culture. The gospel transcends culture, meaning that the gospel message is a universal message of salvation for the nations. And that you don't have to become a certain culture in order to adapt and come to Christ. The gospel's for the nations. Now, that gospel message may be shared in different ways and different languages all across the globe, but the content is universal. There is one Christ, and there is one way to salvation. And you don't have to become culturally Jewish in order to become a Christian. And so what we see here is there is a universal truth, a universal message, and the Gospels for the nations. And we see that even in Jesus' teaching, don't we? Acts 1.8. When you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, what are you to do? You're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the nations. And then in the book of Revelation, we see that who is before the throne? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation is before the throne. Christ died for the people of the world, not just Jewish people. And so Christ is the way for all of us to be saved. Now, you may say, well, Ron, that sounds good. And I agree with you that in Christ there's unity, but not uniformity. In other words, we are one people in Christ, and yet there there is a richness of diversity in the body of Christ, both in uh, culture and ethnicity and gifting. But how does this relate to us? I mean, I'm not out telling people they need to be circumcised to be a Christian. We don't fall into that error, do we? That's probably not in your personal testimony. You know, you're probably not sharing that with people when you talk to them about Jesus. And so you may say, well, Ron, this was a first century problem. And I don't see it having much relevance today. That's been solved. Um, and this is especially true if you part, you were part of the majority culture. Uh, you may say, you know, culture, what, what does that have to do with how we present the gospel? What's the issue there? And, and from my own experience, uh, talking to someone in a majority culture, I'm a white male, so I'm in the majority culture in our country, to, to talk to me about culture sometimes can sound like talking to a fish about water. You ask the fish, you know, fish... How's the water? And the fish says, what water? In other words, this, I don't know any different. This is it. What do you mean, what, what is water? This is just how, we're, this is my life. I don't know any different. And that's how it is for us in the majority culture. Usually, we have a hard time f- figuring out, you know what? My preferences, how I was raised, where I was raised, the way I think, all these things have an impact on how I see Christ. It colors it. It affects it. And what we need to do is be able to recognize that. And so you may say, well, Ron, how does that affect the church today? How does it affect the gospel? Well, I want to give you two, I want to give you a few examples. One, I want to give you the examples that occur, and I'm going to use this, these categories kind of loosely, but one way inside the church community that we can tend to pervert the gospel, okay? and um, promote Jesus plus something else for salvation. 
And then I want to share a little bit about you know, what do we do outside the church, the broader community, something that we do, I think, that tends to pervert the gospel. Here's a couple examples. Um, when we say that you must be baptized to be saved, Jesus plus baptism equals salvation. Whereas we would say, no, baptism doesn't save you. It's an act of obedience, but it's not, it's not what saves you. You, know, you are saved because of your faith in Jesus Christ and what Christ has done. And baptism is an external expression of that, showing the church, identifying with the local church that you are a follower of Christ. But baptism doesn't save you. Or maybe you've heard this, that um, you must place your faith in Christ and speak in tongues to be saved. Again, you're adding to what Christ has done. That's an error that we make. Maybe it's, you need to pray a certain prayer. And this happens. That we somehow create a superstition that if you say certain words, if you just repeat these certain words, then you're saved. You're right with God. So it's Jesus plus repeating certain words. Or if you dress a certain way. Or if you sing a certain way. Or if you walk down the aisle. All these things are ways that we can overemphasize methods or even acts of obedience. We can overemphasize them to such a degree that we taint the gospel. And people walk away thinking, I have to place my faith in Christ and fill in the blank to be acceptable to God. Now those are some examples that happen, I guess, more inside the church. I want to give you one example that I think is... uh, prevalent in in our community. Let's say you walk down Broad Street and you stop somebody and you say, tell me this, I got a question for you. What does it mean to be a Christian? Like what, what makes someone a Christian? How does someone become a Christian? What do you think they're going to say? More often than not, they're going to say, um, being a good person. And that is the mindset of our culture in our city, in Augusta. I guarantee you, if you did a survey of ten people, probably seven or eight of them would tell you, it's because I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. How did they get that idea? What happened? How How did people come to believe that The way you are acceptable to God is because you're a good person. Where did that come from? I think it came from the church. I think that's where it came from. Somehow, and I'm not saying it's completely the church's fault, but somehow, some way, that has trickled out. And when people think Christian, if they're overseas, they think American. Or they think i got to be a good person. In other words, I have to work my way to God. And I just wonder, you know, where, where did that come from? How did we get to the place where Christian is associated with something other than the gospel? And I think one of the errors is that we overemphasize obedience and we underemphasize grace. 
And let me just give you an example. I've got a couple examples. One, I was working at McDonald's as a college student. And uh, I was on a summer mission project, and I was talking to the manager there about Christ and just encouraging her, you know, in her walk with the Lord and just, or her seeking of the Lord and just asked her, you know, what, what's keeping you from placing your faith in Christ? And she said to me, um, well, what's keeping me, Ron, is I need to fix some things in my life before I come to Christ. I said, well, you know, that's like saying before the maid comes over to my house, I need to clean up. <laughs> it's like you're missing the point. It is Christ that saves you. It's Christ that does the work in you. It's not that you clean yourself up. Another example is I'm coaching a basketball team, and we're, you know, part of this program is that you do scripture verses with the with the kids. And the verse we've been working on is Proverbs twelve twenty two that says this: The Lord detests lying lips, but delights in a people who are trustworthy. So what's the point? God doesn't like lying. He likes people that tell the truth. Now, there's nothing wrong with that idea. Yes, we know God likes truth-telling, but you've got to be careful with that. And so with these kids I'm coaching, I say, yes, that is true. God likes truth-telling, but what are you going to do with your lies? You don't tell the truth to be right with God. You come to the one who said, I am the truth. And then, out of that relationship, you will desire truth-telling. But it's not, I tell the truth so that I'll be accepted. But I come to the one who is truth, Jesus Christ, and I am accepted in Him. And therefore, I can move out in obedience to tell the truth. But that's how we can tend to misrepresent the gospel. We could, be, we could overemphasize obedience without emphasizing grace and the motivation for our obedience. And I think that's part of the problem that was going on here in the book, book of Galatians. And so it all kind of comes down to, you know, what are we most passionate about? If you're passionate about right behavior, then that's going to be the gospel you preach. You know, if you're passionate about music or a building or a service, these are the things that are going to come across to others as gospel. But if we're passionate about what Christ has done and who He is, then that is what will primarily come across to others. And so we need to let the gospel be our guide. And not only do we see the gospel transcending culture, it's a a message for all people, all cultures, all around the world, but also when the gospel moves you to become Christ-like as it works in your heart, It always turns your attention to the poor. And I just want to briefly mention this point because I'm going to unpack this more tonight at our 6 o'clock service. But look at verse 10 and what, what Peter says to Paul. He says, Only they asked us, Paul's recounting this the encounter here, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All throughout the scripture, God tells his people to remember the poor. And I think one of the main reasons God tells us to remember the poor is that in helping the poor, we reflect the gospel. We give of our time, of our resources, of our love. We give of ourselves. 
without expecting something in return. You know, it's like what Jesus talked about when He said, you know, when you throw a banquet, invite people that cannot pay you back. Why? Because that is a billboard of grace. That's what it does. It just shouts grace. And that's what the gospel is. It's grace. It's, you don't deserve to be saved, and yet God comes down in the, in the, with His Son, Jesus Christ, and He saves you because of His mercy, His grace, not because of your goodness. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 8 9, this is what Paul could say. He says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, in His poverty, or through His poverty, might become rich. And so when the gospel is preserved in its power, it's unleashed in the lives of us and our community, there there is change that takes place. And so our challenge is, let us be a people that preserves the gospel. Keeps first things first. And that we allow the gospel to work through us and in us to be these change agents in our communities. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and I confess, I know I have overemphasized obedience and different aspects of your word to the detriment of the gospel. And perhaps we have a church have done this as well and maybe individuals here as well. And I know as a church, universal church, obviously we've done this to some degree to give people the misunderstanding that uh, it's their goodness that gets gets them into a right relationship with you. And Lord, we confess that. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to uh, represent the gospel message, what Christ has done for us accurately in the world. Help us to interpret our obedience instead of just attacking disobedience. And Lord, I pray that you would help us if we misunderstand the gospel, that you would free us. Like Paul said, people were coming in, spying out their freedom, trying to enslave them again to the law. Lord, help us to be freedom fighters for the gospel. Help us to be able to show people and even show our own hearts that in Christ we are free to follow you wherever you lead. We are accepted by you. Lord, free us, God, if we believe that it's our own works that gets us to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.